think there's something about the current crop of startups. The last five years has seen some hugely successful companies whose comparative advantage came from breaking the law. When does a corporation deserve the death penalty? Tech giant Uber has gotten tons of bad press this year, mostly over allegations of sexual harassment and retaliation that exposed a real culture of impunity at the company. That prompted the ouster of Uber's founding CEO, Travis Kalanick. It also prompted a pretty harsh audit of the company's human resource policies. But our next guest argues that the sexual harassment is just the tip of the iceberg. That Uber is a company with law-breaking baked into its business model. And that the remedy isn't just a symbolic termination. It's not hiring more HR staff. It's using the enforcement arms of government to put a $60 billion company out of business. This position is coming from a professor in a well-known breeding ground for left-wing radicals, the Harvard Business School. Benjamin Edelman, thank you for joining us. A pleasure. Thank you. Um, let's start with the very basics. The way consumers encounter Uber today is as a company that lets you use an app to call a ride. What is fundamentally illegal about that? Well, in most jurisdictions, some special formalities are required to provide commercial service on the public roads. You need to be the right kind of driver. You need to have the right kind of car inspected in the right way. Often paying some extra fees, you're using the road in a different way than regular folks just driving their kids to school or soccer practice or what have you. You need to pay more than your fair share. You need to pay extra to use the roads like that. You need to have better insurance. You can't be in a risk pool with folks driving to school. You need to be in a risk pool with other commercial drivers. And so on down the line, society has rules. Part of the way we all live together is that we've set up these rules and we most of the time follow them. The thing is, Uber has managed not to do that. And hence the discussion we're now having. Uber is seven years old. Why hasn't it been shut down for violating those local rules already? Well, you know, in many jurisdictions they have. Try to take an Uber in Germany, in much of Spain, in Tokyo. There are place after place where Uber isn't doing what seems so routine and so familiar to us from most American cities. In other places, the rules have been enforced strictly. In Singapore, each and every Uber driver has commercial vehicle, commercial insurance, commercial driver's license. That's pretty easy to get there. It's an easy place to do business. But look, Uber didn't dare mess with the government of Singapore. It's mostly in the United States, in fact, where Uber looked the government up and down and said, ah, these jokers will probably never get around to enforcing the rules. And if they do, the penalty won't stick. So we'll just do whatever we want. That's so Shame on all of us. So, so that means... The company is capable of following those types of regulations. It's just there's, decided there's places it can get away with not doing it. You got it. Um, let's walk through the history, how Uber got to that point, because it did not start out as the type of company it is now. Initially, it was compliant with the law. Well, that's right. Uber began with black cars. They were seeking to make it easier to call a sedan, a licensed fancy vehicle that wasn't cheap if you called it directly and still wasn't cheap if you called it via Uber. That was a great service nonetheless. There were people who were willing to pay, who wanted high-quality service, wanted it in the time and convenience that they had in mind, and Uber delivered that. That was where Uber began. That was entirely legal, and you won't find me uh, speaking negatively of that. So basically, they're taking up the slack time of professional drivers. Exactly. Exactly. 
They are making the economy work more efficiently. That was the initial business. Why did they leave that business? Well, interestingly, as much as everyone loves to love Lyft these days, Lyft seems to have pressured them to do it. Lyft started what Lyft called ride-sharing. It wasn't ride-sharing the way people used to use the term ride-sharing, where a driver who's genuinely driving east on Highway 90 can pick up another passenger who genuinely needs to go east on Highway 90. No, this was ride-sharing in the sense that you use your normal car to get paid something kind of like a taxi rate to provide something kind of like a taxi service. And in the beginning, Lyft had a bunch of real, uh, you know, knee slappers as to the way they wanted to do it. You wouldn't pay a fare, you'd make a donation at the end of the ride. Of course, if you made a donation of zero or too little, you'd probably be kicked off the service, but never mind about that. You wouldn't sit in the back seat, you'd sit in the front seat with your new friends, you'd bump fists. Probably some listeners can remember some of this nonsense from the beginning of Lyft. This was pretty scary for Uber. They saw a competitor coming with what consumers saw as kind of a similar, if not interchangeable service, and with much lower prices. Something needed to be done. Either they could match it, or they could get regulators to shut it down, and they decided to match it. Now, you point out that the CEO of Uber at the time, uh, Travis Kalanick, was so aware of the competitive advantage Lyft was getting from breaking the law that he wrote internal memos to his employees explicitly saying that Lyft was breaking the law. Indeed, and they weren't just internal memos. They were on an Uber corporate blog where I found them. I wrote about them. I had them in slides. I've quoted them in articles, and I still have the PDF on my website where I guess diligent listeners could probably go find it. Uber, of course, deleted it after I started writing about it, but never mind. I kept a copy. There are video interviews out there, too. If you don't believe the words were really written by Travis, you can watch him utter them where he is just blasting Lift. He says, look, every ride is a misdemeanor. How can they get away with it? Where are the regulators? Are they asleep at the switch? Watch the video for yourself and you'll see. So really, the fact that Lyft was not facing consequences for breaking the law this way, that was the green light to Uber. It was. Uber saw that Lyft could get away with it. And they asked themselves, why are we sitting here like idiots following the law when our competitor ignores the law and gets a huge advantage from it. We've got to do the same thing. So let me pose like the devil's advocate question, and this comes up a lot in Silicon Valley circles. What if the law is just kind of stupid and unproductive and waiting for someone to break it in order to point out how stupid and unproductive it is? There are very few people in this world who are happy with how the taxicab medallion system works. I agree completely that a lot of laws are stupid and unproductive, and I'm kind of a skeptical, cynical guy. The more you get to know me, you'll see I'm not one who just sits on my hands looking at dumb laws and not wanting to do something about it. But these are not Rosa Parks issues. These are not issues where civil disobedience is the logical way forward. If you have a commercial dispute about the way that a given industry is regulated, take it to Congress. Take it to City Hall. Take it to your elected representatives, and if you have a good argument, maybe you'll get it fixed. All kinds of industries have gotten deregulated over the years. I could tell you about the history of some of that, how it came about, who pressured it, and what happened. But it doesn't work for companies just to deregulate themselves, to pick the laws they don't want to comply with. It doesn't work for a couple of reasons. One, it sets terrible incentives. Everyone may want to deregulate himself. Maybe some other radio station will set up shop on the same frequency you're trying to broadcast on. That's deregulation, right? Another reason, of course, is that the companies that try to deregulate themselves, establish an internal culture, 
that tolerates, yes, sexual harassment, as you mentioned at the start of the piece, and quite a few other problems that we certainly can talk about. Hard to be honest in some respects while breaking other laws so brazenly. Yeah, no, that was a really interesting part of your piece to me. You, you kind of walked step by step through the significant infrastructure that Uber built up internally to combat law enforcement efforts, including a whole technical infrastructure, uh, something called Grayball. What, what's that? Absolutely. So Grayball is designed to conceal Uber's unlawful practices from regulators who want to enforce the law. If there's a regulator who's sitting downtown in City Hall or in police headquarters or what have you and creates a new Uber account and tries to summon an Uber, the Uber Grayball system will make sure that the vehicle never comes. Even though regular people can create new accounts and summon Ubers, but if your first account is made from inside of City Hall or inside of the police headquarters, you're going to find that it just doesn't work. You're told the vehicle is coming and the vehicle never gets there. That way, there's no one to arrest, no one to ticket, no one to tow. It's pretty sneaky of Uber. you got to give them credit for waking up early in the morning and thinking about what the weaknesses are in their business model and how to defend against those weaknesses. On the other hand, when you've written special software to make sure the chief of police can't figure out what you're doing, it's no great surprise to hear that when the chief of police does figure out what you're doing, he's not going to be very happy about it. I, you know, I'm no lawyer, but... If you've actually developed software to defeat law enforcement, isn't that conspiracy to commit a crime? Well, in Silicon Valley, there is an awful lot of software out there that's intended to defend one software system from another software system. Uh, not two years ago, I was creating fake accounts on Airbnb, some of them black, some of them white, in order to see whether black guests or white guests had a harder time getting reservations on Airbnb. And Airbnb was furious. They wanted to kick me out because they didn't want to be tested that way. So too, Uber doesn't want to be tested by the chief of police. Is there any difference from Ben, the researcher at Harvard, versus the chief of police of Portland? To a Silicon Valley tech titan? Maybe not. Both are kind of thorns in the side. Neither one is someone you want using your service for purposes that are adverse to the company's objectives. Obviously, the chief of police enjoys a special statutory position, a special responsibility to society, taxpayers paying him to do this kind of thing. But from the perspective of an Uber or an Airbnb, maybe they're both unwanted intrusions and both should be stopped if you can figure out a way. Um, this also kind of points to a fundamental power asymmetry uh, with a company like Uber. The, the regulatory authority that is in charge of it is local government, municipalities, cities. It is a massive, well-funded company that can afford top-shelf lawyers, small fleets of lobbyists that can mobilize its own users and drivers to show up at public hearings. Uh, if cities take a one-at-a-time approach to confronting the company, that's pretty good capacity to just overwhelm them. You're absolutely right, and there are several uh, facets of that issue. One, that the cities and municipalities tend to be puny and understaffed compared to rich Uber. Number two, Uber only has to figure out its best arguments once. They can design their arguments and their team and their documents and their procedures once, use them nationally, use them internationally. Whereas the city of San Francisco is kind of out on its own figuring this out as if it was the first time, even though Portland and Seattle and New York and Washington and Boston and the rest all had to figure it out too. How well are the cities collaborating, sharing their legal briefs, sharing their legal research, sharing their technical research? Probably not so much. It's a problem with federalism, I suppose. What would Ben Franklin say? What would Alexander Hamilton say? 
Well, so then that raises the question, uh, if, if the solution, and you've made a compelling argument, if the solution to law breaking, breaking being baked into Uber's DNA is to actually shut the company down through law enforcement action, where does that action come from? How, how would you coordinate all the cities that would have to act collectively in order to put Uber out of business? Right. In fact, cities do coordinate. The city of San Francisco and the city of Los Angeles got together for their major case against Uber last year. So a set of these uh, city transportation planners, city enforcement authorities would get together, maybe through a trade association. One hopes they, they know each other and are in touch generally. If five major cities got together, I bet 15 more would want to join in. They'd be seeking to enforce their existing laws on the books, enforce them strictly, enforce them to the full extent of the penalties that are on the books. If there's a fine of $1,000 per ride for an unauthorized commercial use of the road, then $1,000 per ride times X thousand rides in San Francisco and Y thousand rides in Los Angeles and add it up and send the check to the respective city treasurers. That would be the idea, get the folks together and enforce the existing law. It's a bit of a tall order uh, because, to be sure, the citizens in the respective cities kind of like Uber at this point. But nonetheless, uh, one sees parking tickets enforced, even though parking rules can be kind of unpopular among the citizenry, speeding tickets on down the list. Uh, the law is the law, and most people ultimately come to understand that. Yeah, but parking tickets and speeding tickets don't take an entire service off the table. Like, you've got a whole lot of people you just referred to who've gotten used to getting quick rides in incredibly short time frames for very cheap through services like Uber. Isn't it kind of a stretch to ask local elected officials to, to take that away, to do something that would be so unpopular? You're certainly right that people have gotten used to Uber. Uh, and I tried to find some examples in the historical record of other popular companies that, for whatever reason, have been shut down. I've got a fair number of them. The best and most obvious example is Napster. Napster, of course, was the file-sharing program. It was widely used. I was a freshman in college the year Napster came out. Imagine how many other freshmen were using it, though. Actually, it wasn't really my thing. Uh, People thought Napster was just great. You could get whatever music you wanted, song by song, no need to buy the whole album. You could get it 24-7. Napster was never closed for nighttime or for holidays. It was never out of stock. There were a lot of advantages to Napster. And so consumers who liked Napster were furious when lawyers started making motions towards shutting down Napster. They said, we'll never get these benefits if Napster is shut down. And that, of course, was totally wrong. Once Napster was shut down, other companies stepped up to fill the void. There was iTunes, of course, and uh, we could go down the list of other digital music innovators who stepped up and brought the best of what Napster offered while also uh, managing to find ways to comply with the law. That's what I'd expect to see if Uber and, to be sure, Lyft also faced strict enforcement of existing regulations. We'd see new companies that used legal licensed vehicles. They might not be quite as cheap as Uber, just like iTunes isn't quite as cheap as Napster, it's hard to fight with zero, but it's all a whole lot cheaper than CDs, and anything that comes along is likely to be quite a bit cheaper than taxis have been. So how much, I mean, has anybody tried to quantify how much of the cost savings in an Uber fare comes from the savings they realize by skirting the law on commercial licensing and so forth? Right. You know, there are a variety of different facets to the cost savings. There's commercial licensing, there's commercial vehicle inspection, uh, commercial insurance. You could go down the list. How about paying uh, 
road tax. Here in Massachusetts, the tax uh, to put your vehicle on the road differs when it's a commercial vehicle versus a non-commercial vehicle. Even the toll to drive through the tunnel is higher if you're a commercial vehicle. Reflecting that we charge more to companies, personally, I think that's probably prudent. Seems like a lot of democratic societies have all reached the same result independently, so we might think that it's right. Uh, In jurisdictions where Uber complies with the law strictly, such as in Singapore, usually Uber's cost difference relative to the taxi It's kind of smaller, you know, might be 25% cheaper than a taxi. On the other hand, taxis in Singapore were pretty cheap to start with, so you've got to be careful drawing too much from that specific example. Right now, in a lot of places, Uber is about, what, 40% less than a taxi? It is, but but it's unclear to me to what extent that's because they're just burning down their startup capital to try to get market share. I mean, the company's losing 2 to $3 billion a year at this point, subsidizing rides and subsidizing drivers. You make a good point. Uh, there's a lot that's inefficient about Uber, of course. At least a taxi fleet, when a car needs a, a new exhaust pipe, there is an efficient mechanic who knows how to do that, who does it at the right price, and has done thousands of that same task over and over. When an Uber X driver needs a new exhaust pipe, he's driving into the car dealership or the mechanic's office and negotiating one by one, probably not getting the best price or the best terms. There are respects then in which Uber is actually a lot less efficient than the incumbents. So hard to know exactly what's going to unfold in that respect. We're speaking to Benjamin Edelman. He's a professor at the Harvard Business School. His background, well, his degrees are in law, statistics, and economics. His article at Harvard Business Review is, Uber can't be fixed. It's time for regulators to shut it down. Um, And I want to kind of pull back and dig into some of the bigger picture questions that are raised by the example of Uber. Like the first one is to what extent is what you're describing at Uber, this approach of break it till you make it when it comes to law and regulations, to what extent is that endemic among other new startups coming out of Silicon Valley? You make a great point, and I agree completely. Uh, One of my favorite examples in that regard is YouTube. Uh, From litigation documents when Viacom sued YouTube, we know just how dirty YouTube was. The co-founders themselves were intentionally and personally uploading copyright infringing videos. They weren't doing that because they hated copyright law, although they did. They were doing it because they wanted to get a comparative advantage. They wanted to get more great videos on their site so that people would watch YouTube rather than some of their early competitors. So they and would just worked, like incidentally. record a John Stewart monologue off of their cable provider, rip it as a YouTube video, put it up, and then anybody Googling John Stewart, The Daily Show is going to come to their site instead of Viacom's. That was the idea. Uh, and they would show the video with typically no ads in that era, whereas Viacom might have some ads. Their quality might be better at YouTube. There were a bunch of things they were doing, unencumbered by the fact that Viacom wanted to actually make some money to recover their costs, whereas YouTube didn't really have any costs in that moment, and so they were happy to do it for free. But YouTube came clean. It, it, it pretty rigorously enforces copyright now on its site. Um, It has ads and monetization mechanisms for people who do want to put their own copyrighted material up there. Why do you think Uber couldn't go through the same transition and, and come into the light? You know, the fact is YouTube got pretty lucky. The misconduct that came out in Viacom litigation included the 
the co-founders of YouTube personally uploading infringing videos, destroying evidence, deleting emails uh, in a very similar world to our own, but just ever so slightly different. The YouTube founders would be in jail for destruction of evidence, for lying about it, for falsifying records. Uh, Amazing work by the Google lawyers who defended them. Kudos to them. They're, they're capable attorneys, and they could make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. Uh, that doesn't mean Uber's lawyers will be as skillful or as successful. I think YouTube is probably the high watermark of just how good a job good lawyers can do. Uh, Uber, along the way, has some other just outrageous nonsense, you know, email from Travis about when you can use drugs in the workplace and when you can't. Uh, email from the Miami city manager to Miami drivers about how to trick Miami airport police so they don't realize that you're a commercial driver. It, the list goes on. Uh, the misconduct there on orthogonal matters, on things sort of collateral to Uber's real business, yet uh, attempts to, to, to keep the company going despite the culture of illegality. Look, that's a notch beyond what we saw certainly at YouTube. The other big example that came to my mind reading your article was Airbnb, uh, which has had a lot of tussles with local governments here in the Bay Area. Basically, every municipal zoning code says if you're not a hotel, you can't rent for less than 30 days. And that's exactly what Airbnb facilitated. Um, and in very high-valued areas like San Francisco, they wound up converting some of the housing stock into de facto hotels, making the housing markets even tighter. They never really accepted responsibility for that. Is, is there something about startup culture in particular that sees an opening in breaking the laws that are already on the books? I think there's something about the current crop of startups. The last five years has seen some hugely successful companies whose comparative advantage came from breaking the law. I suppose I've taught some of these students. Uh, in my MBA classroom, occasionally I get students who have ideas not totally unlike what we've been discussing, and I try to tell them why it's not a great idea, but at the same time, they push back. They're capable advocates for their own position. They say, hey, but look what Uber's doing, look what Airbnb's doing, look what YouTube successfully did. You can't make us fight with one hand tied behind our back when no one else is. And that's why I come back to the need for enforcement. Ultimately, you can't ask the entrepreneur to do what others aren't doing. You need to make sure it's in his interest by imposing tough penalties on those who cut corners. Well, what about the venture capitalists? What level of responsibility do they have for sinking capital into a business plan uh, that is explicitly premised on breaking the law? You're absolutely right. In fact, there's been some litigation against the investors who funded these companies. Uh, the music company U Universal Music Group sued a group of investors. The case caption is Universal Music Group versus Scheller, arguing that Scheller and the other investors had so intertwined themselves with some of the copyright infringing websites as they managed those sites, as they gave tips to the management team, and of course stood to profit handsomely if the sites took off that Scheller et al. should be liable for the underlying unlawful acts, the copyright infringement. Uh, UMG didn't manage to win. Scheller prevailed, but only just barely. I mean, that was a close one. The investors should be wary. There's not much of a culture of that in Silicon Valley. But even so, I should temper my remarks. Plenty of investors turned down both Uber and Airbnb, saying not just that that's crazy, but that's illegal and you'll never get away with it, and it won't work for that reason. You know, it's a perpetual youth machine. You can't make perpetual youth, and you also can't make taxis out of regular cars. You can't make perpetual youth because it's literally impossible. You can't do Uber 
Uber because the regulators will never let you get away with it. So said some investors, I guess to their chagrin now as they see that it more or less worked. And yet, uh, if half the investors turn their backs on it and half the investors decide to go with it, that's probably enough to still raise plenty of capital to support the business. So do you think, like, you said this is more prevalent in the last five years uh, among startups. And the question I'm left with, is it like a symptom of tech investment reaching a certain level of maturity where the low-hanging fruit when it comes to innovation have already been built. And now the only opportunities for investment left are companies that are cannibalizing existing industries by circumventing the regulations that apply to them. I don't think the only opportunities out there are circumventing regulations. There's plenty of genuine uh, innovation left to be done. Build a machine that lets a blind person see build a machine that lets a car drive in a lane without a driver sitting at the steering wheel uh, guiding the vehicle. There's so much left to be done. But the confluence of technologies and systems and capabilities that we've had in the last five years did lend themselves to connecting online systems to offline systems. Press this button and an alarm will go off inside of a car telling a driver to come and pick you up at such and such a location. Press this button and a message will go to a person who has an apartment telling them to get it ready because you're coming and you need a place to sleep. All of that was made possible by the diffusion of some pretty flexible technologies, increasingly sophisticated websites, and of course, smartphones and apps. With those capabilities, it was easy to do this kind of business. As technology develops, we'll have some other businesses. I'm hoping that in the coming decade, we'll be talking more about businesses that genuinely advance the state of knowledge, the state of humanity, rather than just finding ways for some people not to comply with the laws that other people do comply with. I would hope that too, but but venture capital by its nature is looking for these really outsized returns. A win for them is a company that returns 10 times their investment. Um, I, I was really struck by something that Steve Blank wrote on his blog. He is a serial entrepreneur, done very well for himself, teaches in the business schools at Stanford and, and Harvard too, I, I believe. Um, and he wrote that basically the difference between startups and regular firms is that regular firms can't break the law without jeopardizing their existing lines of business, right? The, the legal departments will intervene and shut down new initiatives that would risk whatever they already have. Startups are a way of just carving out a sliver of capital to see what you can get away with. And he's not uh, reciting that as something he's denouncing, just like something that's fundamental to the structure of a new company backed by venture capital. It, it, it makes me wonder if there's some type of reform that doesn't need to happen in the financial sector. Well, I'd be all in favor of making investors more liable uh, when they're deeply intertwined with company activities. An investor who sits on the board who has a major upside if things go right, why shouldn't they be liable? What is the principled reason why their loss should be limited by the amount they put in? That's a controversial view. You'll find plenty of people who disagree. Certainly routine mom and pop investors who buy a few shares on NASDAQ, they shouldn't be liable beyond. Yeah, but they're buying shares in regulated publicly traded companies. They're operating in a completely different world from a venture-backed startup. Indeed, and that's exactly the point. When the investors are so intertwined with the running of the company, it seems to me the case is strong. Uh, and that's right back to Universal Music Group versus Scheller and the arguments that were made there. To the suggestion that startups enjoy a special place in society where they don't have to follow the laws, you know, as a practical matter, that is kind of what we've been seeing for the past decade. Uh, I don't know that that's a good thing. Uh, 
maybe folks will disagree about it. Ultimately, it's a question for legislators and judges to opine on. My own sense is that when the laws are out there, when the laws are clear, when the laws embody something important, that this kind of vehicle needs to pay more towards the maintenance of the tolls, that's a perfectly important principle, even as some people may disagree with it. Look, once that rule is on the books, it's got to be followed. Whether you're big or small, that's the rule, and that's that. All right. Benjamin Edelman, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. A pleasure. Benjamin Edelman is a professor at the Harvard Business School. He has advanced degrees in law, statistics, and economics. His article in the Harvard Business Review is Uber Can't Be Fixed. It's time for regulators to shut it down. That was episode two of our newest project at KPFA, Upfront Tech. If you like what you're hearing, help us out. Rate and review Upfront Tech in whatever app you use to listen. It really helps us get the word out. Upfront Tech is produced and hosted by me, Brian edwards Teekert. This episode had help from Diana Martinez. We're shooting to put up a new episode every Friday. Most of the time, that means you'll hear them here before they ever go on the air. It also means that you'll hear longer, more in-depth versions here because no clock. That is the beauty of podcasting. If you just found this and you like it, especially if you live in the Bay Area, you might like the daily show that we produce at KPFA. It's called Upfront. No tech, just Upfront. We're on live weekday mornings from 7 to 9 a.m. Pacific time at kpfa.org. And we always love to hear what you think. Send email to upfront at kpfa.org.